So we saw a lot of cool things in our 5,000 mile journey. One of the biggest highlights was Ken Ham's Ark Museum in Kentucky. If you ever get a chance to go there, even though it's the other side of the country, I'd encourage you to go. We considered it a preemptive strike in the lives of our children against the, the humanistic lies this world will seek to pour into them. Just as one example, you'll sometimes hear a skeptic say, how could they possibly fit all those animals on that boat? When you get there and see it, it's built to scale according to the biblical measurements. You'll get it. They had three or four levels in there, and as I looked at the size of it, I quickly realized you could easily tuck two adult elephants into one small, tiny corner on just one of those levels. No problem. But I thought about those eight people on that ark after God had judged the whole world with a flood and everyone, every human, every creature except those eight and the animals on that ark were, were destroyed because of sin. And I thought about those eight people as they came off of the ark. Do you think they had some gratitude to God for being spared? I'm sure they did. And I think about that, and I think about how there's a parallel in where we're at in the book of Galatians. Those first four chapters, he'd been laying out the foundation of our freedom in Jesus Christ. And that should lead us to a place of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, I'm free. And these last two chapters, five and six, are kind of like, okay, I'm free. Now what? And I've heard a number of great things about the last couple weeks as Pastor Aaron and Pastor Daniel began on that track. I'm free now what? How do I live? I'm going to continue there today. And as I think about this, I'm free now what? I, I think of a buddy of mine who's been in and out of prison uh, throughout his life at various times. And sometimes when he gets out of prison, he goes to a halfway house. And you know what a halfway house does? It helps guys, once they're free from prison, know how to make the most of their freedom. Uh, not to go back into patterns of enslavement and things like that. That's kind of how I view these last two chapters of Galatians. If you'll go with me on it, kind of like Paul's halfway house. You're a free believer in Jesus. Now here's how to make the most of it for God's glory. Last week, Daniel told us about the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the things we'll see in this chapter is that fruit of the Spirit is not just some mystical thing just between me and God up in some ivory tower and robes and oh, uh, separated from the world. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit does its best work, you know where? In, in relation to other people. Other people within the church and even with believers out in the world because the vertical relationship with God in its truest form always has an impact in our horizontal relationships. The place where fruit of the Spirit is really to touch down is in our churches, our homes, our jobs, our neighborhoods, and in our friendships. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to bring four ways to do this, and each of them has to do with looking keeping our spiritual eyes open for where God wants to use us. So let's jump into the first one. I'm free now what? Number one, look around. Look around you in the church and restore 
your fallen brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do I say that? Jump with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So you saw it right there in the text, right? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The words here are interesting. When it talks about someone being caught in a transgression, it's almost like they're surprised by it. It's the picture of someone, if you're walking, if you've ever been out in your neighborhood walking and a runner comes up behind you and surprises you, like, whoa. And the, the transgression word here is to stumble. It's not always that they were necessarily planning on doing this sin, but they, they stumble into a sin. So what are we to do when we know a brother or sister in the church that, that is there? We don't ignore, ignore it, just look the other way. Nor do we condone their sin and say, oh, that's okay. That's okay that you've chosen that path. Nor do we beat them down with an air of superiority, kind of, oh, I'm glad I caught them in that because that makes me feel better about myself because I'm not doing that. Nor do we throw them aside. They're done. God can never use them again. What do we do according to Paul? We aim to restore them. That word restore is an interesting word. It's used to set a broken bone. My nephew Caleb broke his arm in, in Ohio after two or three days there. We felt so bad for him. But what do they do often after a broken bone? They set it. They, they set it right. That's the same word used here. We help our brother or sister set their life right. But he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. What is that talking about? Well, the one who's restoring this person ideally is someone who's walking in the spirit, walking in obedience to Jesus, and at least not involved in that same sin that that believer is. None of us are without sin, right? So we're not saying perfect. Otherwise, none of us can help each other. But I think about it like this. You've got two pigs in a mud pit, and one of them's trying to get the mud off the other one. How's that going to go? Not so good. What, what do you need? You need somebody on the outside of that particular mud pit. And, and Paul says, if you're that one trying to help them out, he says, keep watch on yourself lest, lest you too be tempted. Because what happens often when, when we're confronted with sin in our lives or we confront someone else with sin in their lives? There's a temptation to justify it. Well, this is why this is okay. This is why I'm doing this. And we can be swayed by that if we're not careful. So if we're the one restoring, we want to make sure this is truly a hand out of the mud pit and that we're not being pulled into that same mud pit because that's a real danger. But ideally, it's someone outside of the mud and even better, someone with a water hose. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because one of the best ways to be cleansed of our sin, not just in reality, but in practice, is through the word of God, which is referred to as water. Where do I get that? Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So as we go, we, we go with the truth of God's word. That's one of the best ways to help restore a brother in sin. You say, what would I say? Follow the spirit. There are a thousand different situations. But here's one thing that could almost always apply. You remind them, if they're a believer, who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ. Paul did this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This was a church full of all different kinds of sin. Even among the Christians, carnal Christians we call them. What does he say? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list of sins. Now listen to what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. What's he doing? He's saying, that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are. And he goes on, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So always reminding them of who they are in Christ. This action you've stumbled into is not who you are. Let's get back in line with who you really are in Christ. But he also says to do it a particular way. What's he say? In a spirit of gentleness. Yes. Again, this is not the guy with the baseball bat. Aha, caught you. Bam. Right? It's a spirit of gentleness. Where does this spirit of gentleness come from? It comes in people who realize how much we've been forgiven before God already. Do you have a good understanding of how much God has forgiven you for in your life? That's where it comes from. I think some of the best people for this spirit of gentleness are those who know the battle that the person's in the middle of. Maybe they've experienced it in the past. Maybe they've been in that same mud pit, but God in his grace delivered them and gave them victory over that sin. And now... You're willing to go back and help others who fall into that same one. It's been well said that God uses our scars in our ministry to others. That's why in my life, while I love all kinds of people, there are two groups that are always high on my radar. Those who struggle with doubts about the reality of God and the Christian faith and the Bible. Because I went through that for two years at Moody Bible Institute as a young student there grew up in a Christian home accepted Christ early but then I had that dark season of doubts and God brought me through it he solidified my faith at the end but what's that do now when I meet somebody who has those questions I don't pound them with a bat I say let's talk I've been there let me let me share some things God used to help me the other one is pornography a few years of my life where looking at pornography was was a regular part of my life and God delivered me. So whenever I meet a young man or a man of any age who who stumbled into that trap, my heart goes out to him in a spirit of gentleness because I know what that was like. And I want to come alongside him. John Piper once wrote a, an article and the title was blunt. It was called Missions and Masturbation thinking about that pornography thing and one of the things that he said in that article was one of the the most grievous things about sexual sin the way the enemy uses it is not that the sexual sin itself happened 
It's that the enemy comes along in the lives of believers who have that in their past and convinces them that there is no grace for you. God is done with you. You are condemned. He said that's the most grievous thing. Paul talks about restoring those who have stumbled. But that assumes that we care about those around us, that we have a care for others, that our lives are not only focused on what's going on in, in me and mine, right? I think about that care for others, and I think about something we learned about my grandpa, my papa, who just passed. After he went through the, the beach on D-Day, there was a, a mission he was on to find surrounded Americans. And my cousin Bobby sat down with him one time in his later years and said, Hey, Papa, how come you have that shrapnel in your leg? Because he had shrapnel in his leg till the end of his life. And he was on that mission to find surrounded Americans. They came under fire. And it turns out the, it was friendly fire. It was coming from other Americans. And so they started yelling, Lou Gehrig! Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, just to let the other Americans know, hey, we're on your team. Stop firing. <laughs> they stopped, but he ended up in a field hospital, and the doctors at the hospital said, we're going to transfer you to another unit because your unit, the 29th, is still taking the heat to the Germans. You know what my papa did? He went AWOL out of that hospital and rejoined his guys in the 29th. He cared about those guys. He didn't have to do it, but he went back in there, taking the heat to the Germans with his guys. He wanted to share that load with them, even though he had a way out. Paul says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Greek word here is heavy burdens. There are some burdens in life that we need help with. Have you been there? Are you there today? A heavy burden. He says, this fulfills the law of Christ. Without going into a long diatribe, what's the law of Christ? You read the New Testament. What does he say as his commands? What does he say through his apostles? Then remember, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. This is one of those ways. Bear one another's burdens. We need people willing to go back in to the battle for the good of the unit. Are, are we those kind of people when we see our brothers and sisters fallen in sin? Is there a brother or sister you know who has stumbled? Maybe they're there right now. What's, what, what is the first step? Ask God, what's the first step you'd have me take to help restore them? Or maybe you're saying, hey, I'm the one who's stumbling. Reach out to someone you know and love in the church. That's why we're here. We don't all have it all 100% together. We're here to bear one another's burdens, okay? So that's the first one. It is the look around, restore your brothers and sisters. Second, look up. Look up. Reflect on your responsibility before God. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, why does Paul say that right after he's talked about restoring a brother who's stumbled? Because what's our temptation when we see a brother who's stumbled? We, we, we love to compare ourselves to other people, right? And usually in our, the pride of our flesh, that comparison almost always comes out good for us. 
I'm better than, than that guy, so I'm all right. But listen, what Paul's saying here is the question for you and, and me is not, what did that other person do with the life and opportunities that God has given them so much as what am I doing with the life and opportunities that God has given me, right? It, it's kind of what happened with Peter as he's talking with the risen Christ. John 21, you remember Christ was telling him how he was going to be executed as he followed him faithfully. And what's Peter's first question? What about John? And isn't that what often happens even when we were kids and our parents want to talk to us about our lives or something going on? But he, but she, no, 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 I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. What did Jesus say to Peter? John 21, 22, yes. He said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, mind your own business. Listen to what I'm saying to you right here. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, this is interesting because earlier he had said, carry each other's burdens. But here he says, each will have to bear his own load. Preacher J. Vernon McGee said there was an atheist in his town growing up that would come to this passage on the and he would preach on the street corner and he'd say, see, there are contradictions in God's word. One verse, it says, bear one another's burdens. There's a couple verses later, it says each has to bear his own load. He went on to explain, as many scholars have, that this is why we need to sometimes dive below the English language. These are not the same Greek word for burden. Earlier, when it was talking about sharing each other's burdens, carrying each other's burdens, that's talking about a heavy load, a load that needs help being carried. What this is talking about is like a pack, a pack someone would wear on a journey. In fact, J.B. Phillips brought it to us this way. Each one should shoulder his own pack. Say, what's my pack from God? Well, I think about what Jesus said. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I think at least part of that burden, part of that pack is the calling that God has put on your life, the calling God has put on my life to, to walk out as I'm yoked up with Jesus. That is both a privilege and a responsibility. But it's easy to forget both of those in this world. One of the things we did in Chicago we, we wanted to take the boys to the Willis Tower, which used to be the Sears Tower, 1,400-some feet high. You can get up on the sky deck, which is 103 floors up, and they have a half inch of plexiglass and other material that you can step out on. It's called the ledge. And just look down on the city. You buy your tickets in advance. You take that elevator to the 103rd floor, and you know what happened when we got up there? The top of that building was surrounded by a giant cloud. You could see virtually nothing. And you only get 90 seconds on that ledge you paid a pretty penny for. So guess what we did? We sat down with a bunch of other families just waiting, praying, Lord, please remove the clouds. 
And during that hour or so we were up there, we got restless, you know, like it's easy to forget like where we're at. We're on the 103rd floor of one of the tallest buildings in the world. Why? Because of the clouds. And I think about that in the spiritual life. It's easy to forget where we are at spiritually. You know what your position is spiritually if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our position in Christ. But that's easy to forget that privilege and that responsibility because what? The clouds of this world, the discouragements, the trials, the busyness, just the relentlessness of life around us. We need to remember where we're at. We walk by faith, not by sight. One of the other things we saw, anybody stop by the giant cross just outside of Amarillo, Texas? I'd encourage you to stop there. It may be the biggest cross in the world. I'm not sure. But boy, there are a lot of people there just looking up at this huge cross. And it reminded me, too, that a, a big view of the cross is another thing that helps us keep in mind the privilege and responsibility of, of who we are before Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? What does the cross remind us of? He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He bought us with this precious price. And I think about this, and I can't help but think about something cool that happened in Ohio. I got to baptize a niece and a nephew in Lake Erie, and one of those is Joshua, who's sitting right over here, he got baptized in Ohio. Yeah. And afterwards, we're just all splashing around in the water. Joshua had already accepted Christ as a Savior, but he knew that Jesus wanted him to be baptized. And after we're done and we're splashing around, he just had this huge smile on his face. Like, it, it, nothing could wipe it off. And he just kept saying, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I wanted to make God happy. I wanted to make God smile. He said, can I give you a hug? I'm like, yeah, you can give me a hug. He was so happy. Now, he knew that he was saved by the grace of Jesus, but what was he saying? He's saying, I, I knew God wanted me to be baptized, and I want to bring a smile to his face. You know we can do that and the opposite, right, in our lives as believers? Here's the pleasing in Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's one way our actions can go, pleasing to God. But there's another way. Ephesians 4.30 says what? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And that's surrounded by sins of speech and bitterness and anger. So I want to close this section about looking, in, looking up and remembering our responsibility before God by just asking, do I have my eyes mostly on others, their, their failings and successes, or are my eyes primarily on God and, and the pact that, that He's given me to carry? Because here's the reality. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good 
or evil. At that moment, there's not going to be any talk about that other person. It's going to be me and him. Not, not to determine my salvation, that settled at the cross, but my reward. Your reward for eternity. Third one, look in. Look in. We have to reckon with the results of sowing and reaping in our lives. Verse 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is one type of sowing. Most scholars believe that, among other things, Paul is talking here about sharing financially with leaders who t teach the word. Now, talk about awkward. I'm the one that gets this passage, and I have to be up here teaching this. Why? Because we teach God's word. Okay? Why do people think that's part of what Paul is alluding to here? Uh, because uh, share all good things with the one who teaches. And we know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that he said this plainly. He said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. It's real plain right there. And, and I've got to say a couple of things. Number one, Thank you to this church because from the earliest days, this church has taken that seriously. And it, I don't take that for granted. Second, I, I want to say this should never be under compulsion. That's why you'll never see us not coming, knocking on your door in your neighborhood <laughs> about giving. I don't know what you give every year. Our accountant knows. That's between you and the Lord. It's, it's a willing kind of offering. But what's the requirement? Let let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So if you give in that way to spiritual leaders, make sure they teach the word. If this church ever gets to the point where we don't teach the word of God, I'd encourage you to leave and find another church. Now let's move on from that one. Because <laughs> that's only one type of, of sowing. He says, share all good things with the one who teaches. There are other ways to share with the teacher, whether it's up here or Frank or anyone who teaches any of our small groups. When you sit in that small group, for example, and let's say it is Frank, and God uses him that night to pass on a truth from God's word, or, or Dave as he teaches Colossians, and it really hits your heart. Another way you can share all good things with them is to go to them and say, hey, thank you for what you shared tonight because here's how God used that in my life because let me ask you Dave I know I'm putting you on the spot are there times when the enemy comes and attacks you as the leader of that role and seeks to discourage you and bring you down you betcha and you don't know how much that means just to hear wow God God used that so that's another way now he's going to move on to talk about sowing and reaping in general let's move away from the leaders verse 7 do not be deceived God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, when we were on the way from Flagstaff to Prescott Valley yesterday, I asked Jaden, my oldest son, to read Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and I asked him, what jumps out at you? What's your favorite thing in this whole 10 verses? He said that God is not mocked. I love that. It's, it's a powerful statement. What does it mean? Because people mock God, right? We see it all around us. In our world, they, they mock him. What it means is it does not go overlooked by God. 
we can fool a lot of people. We can't fool an all-knowing God. I think about this, and I think about my parents. They've, they've honored their commitment in Ohio to care for my mother's parents, who are both now with the Lord, and they plan on moving out here at the end of August, which we're really excited about. So pray for them, if you would. But something happened along the way. As they, as they looked for, for places out here online, they got an email out of nowhere from someone that said, Hey, we saw you're looking for a place in the Prescott area. We're connected with the Joyce Myers Ministries, and we have a house, a whole house for rent for $1,000 a month that we would love to be available to you. It sounds great, right? Now, as they began to explore a little bit, they quickly found out they had been fished or something online. This individual was all part of a scam, and that became especially apparent when the individual said, by the way, how much money could you send us up front? Now, I think about this, God will not be mocked, and I think about my dad's reply email to that individual. The last email he sent to them was short and to the point. It was simply Hebrews 4.13. said, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Sin. <laughs> God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And here we get into the sowing and reaping. This is another way. You can't fool God. He knows what we sow, and that affects what we reap. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I want to focus primarily on believers, because Paul's writing to believers in Galatia here. We have a, we have a choice which one we're going to sow to. And we know, looking at NASDAQ, you don't want to pick a bad stock because you invest in a bad stock, you, you reap a bad return. You invest in a good stock, you reap a good return. There's a spiritual equivalent here. Am I going to sow to the flesh and reap corruption? Or am I going to sow to the spirit and reap eternal life? Now that can't mean that I gain eternal life by making good choices because that comes when we have faith in Christ. What's he talking about? It means I fully experience the joy, peace, and power of my eternal life only when I sow to the Spirit. Listen, we need to deal with a lie here, a lie that, that sometimes maybe even creeps into the church. God's grace and the security of our eternity in heaven as believers does not erase the temporary consequences of our sin. And it also affects our reward or lack of reward when we stand before him one day. That's why it's very, very important we think about where we invest our lives. You say, what do I invest with? Thoughts, time, my talents, my, my treasure, my money. Where we invest those things impacts what kind of harvest we will reap. How do I reap to the flesh? Well, Daniel told us those works last week. Chapter 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
we invest there, we can expect a harvest of corruption in our lives. How do we invest in the spirit? What does that look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That brings a harvest of a whole different kind, the full enjoyment of this eternal life that we already have. So I want to close this section by asking us each to take a look. How's my spiritual portfolio this morning? Am I investing in the flesh or the spirit? Final one. This is a word of encouragement. These first three have been kind of challenging, right? Like Paul's like, final one. Look ahead. Remember the harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. Verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Anybody feel weary, (laughs) at least on occasion in this life? This is encouragement for you. Maybe you're there this morning. Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season. We will reap if we do not give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. I'd encourage you guys sometime this afternoon or this week, go home, pull out the short book of Titus in your New Testament, the letter Paul wrote to Titus, and underline everywhere Paul encourages Titus and that church that he led toward good works. Over and over again, this apostle of grace insists that true grace in the life of a believer should should lead to a walk with the spirit that leads to good works. Just underline those good works in there. It's, It's part of what flows out of a walk with Jesus in the spirit. What does he say? So then as we have opportunity, we all have different opportunities, right? How do you spot those opportunities to do good? Well, ask God, who are the people? that I have in my life where I have some some influence where are the places that he takes me today and what passions and gifts has he given me that I can use there ask him to lead you in those three and there are three good indicators as to where your opportunities are but who does he say to do good to do good to everyone That's a big word. Makes me think about some of the things that Jesus said. You remember he talked about his father who sends his rain on the just and the unjust. You remember how he told us to be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. Forgive those who sin against you. Pray for those who persecute you. I think about this and I, and I think about some of the things we saw on our journey. We got outside of our little corner of the world and we saw some things we don't always see. At least four different places we saw people who were clearly men dressed as women. That leads to one opportunity on the one hand when you're leading a family to talk about the, the, the sinful, sad delusions that are upon our world, right? But, but we can't stop with, with talking about that truth that it is sin 
without going on to the fact that we have a Savior who, when he saw those crowds on the beach, says he looked at them and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the truth doesn't do away with Paul's command here to do good to everyone. Think about the, the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned. I rejoice in the protection of innocent lives in the womb. But on the other side of that, the church needs to continue to be known, and, and it is known if people would take an honest look, for doing good to women who find themselves in dire straits with pregnancies. Do good to everyone, not just the believers. I think about a song by Andy Minio called Wild Things. He, he, he kind of puts it bluntly. He says, well, well, I want to go where the wild things are. Welcome to the church in the wild. I live with dudes, haven't been to church in a while. I've chosen this lifestyle. You ever met my friends? Porn stars, dope dealers. People ask, why do you chill with them? I thought you was a Christian. He says, yeah, I'm on that team, but I'm with them because my life's the only Bible that they've ever seen. Some want to be an earshot from the church bell. I want to win souls, make gunshots in the worst hell, telling them Christ became a curse for their sin with my words and my works. They won't come in. I'm bringing church to them. That reflects the missionary heart of God. Do we have that heart beating within us? You say, well, I don't know many porn stars or dope dealers. Maybe you know somebody in your neighborhood that thinks money's where it's at, and that's what they worship, or somebody who thinks this life is all there is. What about them? Do good to them in your actions. Share the gospel with your words. Here's two real practical examples where sometimes doing good is not always easy, right? There's someone in our church having a house built, and we live in a world where everything's on delay, right? You can put yourself in their shoes and imagine the daily battle between going off on the contractor and, and loving that contractor, but that individual told me, God's helping me see this more as an opportunity. And he said, I told this contractor, look, my relationship with you is far more important than the timing of this house going up. And he's chosen to pursue it that way. That's, that's doing good to everyone, even when it's hard, when it would be easy to go off. How, how's about this one? Sandy told me a story that broke my heart when I heard it. Sandy has epilepsy. And she told me I could pass this on to you. She has violent grandma seizures. And her daughter says, your, your seizures aren't real. You're, it's, you're faking it. You're a drunk etc. I don't want to be around you anymore when you have those seizures. You can only imagine how that hurts. But Sandy found out that that same daughter recently had a, a Down syndrome baby. And Sandy, I can only credit this to the grace of Jesus in her life and the spirit within her. She reached out to that same daughter and said, hey, I I saw, through, heard through the grapevine, she didn't even hear from her daughter, that she had a Down syndrome baby, and I'd, I'd like to be there to help you as you raise that little one. No response. 
But I said, man, Sandy, I hope they do respond. But even if they don't, they got to be asking themselves, why would she make that offer after we shut her out of our lives? Why did she? It's only the love of Jesus that leads someone to do good to everyone, even someone who's, who's hurt us. But he goes on from the everyone. He says, especially the household of faith. Especially. What's that mean? It means if we love Christ, if we say we love Christ, we have to love his bride as well. That, that goes together. That goes together. If he loved his bride enough to die for them, I need to love them too. And that's why we have opportunities galore, like taking meals to Deb, or maybe you see opportunities that we don't even bring up here. Remember last year, you helped the Tapoofs with their flood. That was so awesome. The whole church coming together. Let's keep that up, especially the household of faith. So I want to close that section by saying, where do, where do I have opportunity to do good today? Where do I see a need that I could step into? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I'm going to close with a story about D.L. Moody. True story. It's fresh on our minds because on our way back, we took the northern route and stopped in Chicago where Carolyn and I went to Moody Bible Institute. And as we were on the campus there, there's a cool plaque that says, near this spot, D.L. Moody knelt and prayed for land upon which to build a, a Bible college. And we got a picture of the boys there. He was one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known by, by God's grace in his day, long before airplanes, he shared the gospel with some estimate 100 million people in America and on the other side of the Atlantic. And he founded Moody Bible Institute as well as a Bible school in Northeast America. But have you ever heard how he came to Christ? 1854, D.L. Moody was 17 years old. He worked in a shoe shop. He didn't know Christ, and he had zero interest in matters of spirituality or religion and he was forced to go to Sunday school by his family one day his Sunday school teacher came to the shoe shop where he was working and he, the Sunday school teacher said hey I'm, I'm worried about you I want to talk so they went into the basement of the shoe store where the Sunday school teacher led D.L. Moody to Christ now the Sunday school teacher's name was Edward Kimball. How many of you have ever heard that name in your life? <laughs> Quiet room. Yeah. I think about that Sunday school teacher. Do you think he ever had days where he wondered if teaching Sunday school made a difference? When he woke up Sunday feeling tired and discouraged? I'm sure he did. But the story gets even cooler. Edward Kimball led D.L. Moody to Christ, okay? And D.L. Moody was preaching, and a, a man named J. Wilbur Chapman came to the Lord at one of D.L. Moody's meetings. And a man named Billy Sunday was converted at a meeting where J. Wilbur Chapman was preaching. And Mordecai Ham was converted at a meeting where Billy Sunday was preaching. And do you know who was converted at a Mordecai Ham meeting? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. And you think about the thousands and or millions 
who have come to Christ through his preaching ministry. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, knew this would happen when he woke up on Sundays to teach that Sunday school? Or when he took that walk to the shoe store? No. But God did. And I think about that, and I think, look, so I know sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get weary. We feel like throwing in the towel. Maybe it's parenting. What do they say? Long days, fast years. Maybe it's ministry. Hang in there. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for there will be a harvest if we do not give up. A harvest in eternity, and often a harvest here, just doesn't always come overnight. Think about that on our 5,000-mile round trip. There were times where it felt like, are we ever <laughs> going to get there? That's what it's, it just takes time. And often that's how it is with the harvest in ministry. But there is a harvest coming. As we close, I want to review. What, what do I do with my freedom in Christ? Number one, look around. Restore your fallen brothers and sisters. Number two, look up. Reflect on your responsibility, your pack, your calling before God. Number three, look in and reckon with the results of sowing and, and reaping. And number four, please don't miss this one. Look ahead because the harvest is coming. Lord, I thank you for these words from Paul. And I thank you for how specific and, and practical they are that when you work in our lives, it's in a way that, that touches where we live, touches those around us. And we want that. We want it to be more than some facts we remember on Sunday morning. Uh, we want it to be more than only our time with you, though. That's where the, the root of it all, we, we have to... Be those branches abiding in the vine. But we ask that, as Paul preached today, that, that out of that connection, that, that fruit would flow. Or that you would use us to restore those who are fallen. That you would keep our eyes on the calling you've given to us. That you would help us make wise decisions this week as to where I sow my life. And Lord, just encourage any who are broken or weary this morning. There's a harvest coming. Don't give up. Lord, may you help us use the offerings that we're about to share for the preaching of your word and the advancement of your kingdom, both here and abroad. In Jesus' name, amen.